Would you please uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27, and we'll begin reading at verse 27. So we have been uh, in a series on the book of Acts for quite some time now, and uh, we are actually looking at one more week, uh, today and next week, and then we will be, uh, we'll be finished with the book of Acts. So you might want to throw some parties at home, things like that, um, have some real celebrations, not just for birthdays and stuff, but uh, real celebrations. By the way, uh, thanks for all the birthday well wishes and cards and uh, all the stuff that I've received this past week. It's, it's just nice to experience uh, the love of this congregation, so thank you for that. We're almost to the end of the book of Acts, and at, as we near that end, Luke gives us a long, long story of Paul's voyage um, <clears throat> from Caesarea to Rome. And uh, we're going to pick up that, that story sort of midway through. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing just to get a sense uh, for the gravitas that Luke includes in this story. But uh, we're going to read just uh, <clears throat> verse 27 through the end of this chapter, and, um, and the, the story really goes on into chapter 28, uh, almost to the arrival at Rome. But let's uh, look, Acts 27, verse 27, page 1742 in your pew Bibles. On the 14th night, we were being, or still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they, then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could, who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, 
everyone reached land in safety. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we all love a good journey. There are lots of stories about journeys these days. Many of them are science fiction. Um, Many of them, like uh, the Lord of the Rings, are not fairy tales, but they're fictional stories. I know stories that... uh, that Theo, for one, loves. But before there were space stories and Star Wars and all of those kinds of things, there were sea voyage stories. Everybody seems to love a good sea voyage story, better than that, even a shipwreck story. For instance, we all know the story of the Titanic, right? At least uh, that was helped along by Leonardo DiCaprio and, and Kate Winsler, or Winslet, excuse me, And then we add to that the stories of our youth, right? Robinson Crusoe, Swiss Family Robinson, stories like that. Or maybe you've read the story of Ernest Shackleton and his quest to make it uh, down to the South Pole, to be the first one to um, to get to the South Pole. And then there are more popular stories like the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which many of us who might be my age, um, we could probably sing that story from heart right now, right? Um, Gordon Lightfoot's version. Gordon Lightfoot, whom my Canadian friends often refer to as two-chord gourd. Um, That song made him a rich man uh, just by telling that haunting tale of how the gales of November sunk that Great Lakes ore carrier. That story is etched in our minds, right? Of course, there's no greater sea story than that wreck of the SS Minnow, (laughs) whose mate was a mighty sailing man, the skipper brave and sure. All of those great sea stories, and yet, not many of them in the Bible. There aren't many sea stories in the Bible, maybe one or two that we can think of. Why is that? Well, it's because the Jews were not seafaring people. The Jews did not like uh, the seas, for one. And that goes all the way back to the story at the beginning of creation when those pre-creation chaotic forces were present, right? The waters, the waters were present. And out of that chaos, God brought the order of his creation. And yet those seas, those waters were always there, sort of threatening God's good created order. And so the Jews were not just a seafaring people. That wasn't so true for the Greeks, however. The Greeks seemed to love a good sea story, and that goes all the way back to Homer and and Odysseus and his, you know, his tangles with the Cyclops and with the Sirens, just great sea stories, right? And the Greeks were more of a seafaring people. In fact, for the Greeks, the voyage on the sea um, was sort of a metaphor for the journey of life and the storms that we encounter along the way. And that's where I'd like to begin this morning, and it's just with that idea of metaphor. Um, years ago, Scott Jose gave this example. He, he, he remembered a 60-minute interview in which they interviewed singer uh, and songwriter Paul Simon. And if you remember Paul Simon's song, <clears throat> um, 
Uh, Mrs. Robinson, he refers a couple of times to the baseball player Joe DiMaggio in that song, right? Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? A nation turns its lonely eyes to you. And in that interview, Paul Simon says that shortly after that song was released, he actually got a, a letter from Joe DiMaggio, and he was kind of confused. And he says, what do you mean, where have I gone? I'm, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm right here. I'm, I'm selling Mr. Coffee. And, <clears throat> and Paul Simon you know, he kind of looked at the camera and, and, and he says, uh, obviously Mr. DiMaggio is not used to being referred to as, or, or seeing himself as a metaphor, as a metaphor. And the truth is that it's not just Joe DiMaggio who has trouble identifying metaphors because sometimes as Christians we're guilty of that as well. In our over-concern sometimes that, that we make sure that the Bible is always taken as, as literal truth, sometimes we forget that the truth can also be used by biblical writers as metaphor. An example of that, I think, is, is the story of Jonah, the sea story of Jonah in the Old Testament. That story is also a story of Israel. I mean, Jonah was running from his God-given assignment to preach repentance to the Ninevites. And in that task, Jonah was supposed to really be a mirror for all of Israel to see that they too had been called by God to be a light to all of the nations, to all of the Gentiles. And quite often, they failed in that task and were running from that task instead. Now ask yourself, with that in mind, why do you think it is that Luke spends so much time at the end of the book of Acts telling us this sea story and this story of shipwreck? And to get at that answer, think perhaps about how the Apostle Paul is so much the very opposite of Jonah, the prophet. Okay? Jonah was on board that ship, as I said, <clears throat> because he was running from his God-given assignment to preach to the Gentiles. Paul is on board this ship because he is being obedient to his God-given assignment to preach to the Gentiles. Jonah, Jonah was bitter and resentful in his heart toward the Ninevites, right? But Paul, by God's grace, had developed a deep compassion for the Gentiles. Jonah had to be thrown from his ship in order to save all of his shipmates from the storm, right? Paul, Paul actually has to remain on board the ship in order to save his shipmates. Paul has to weather the storm, so to speak. In other words, in the person of Paul, Luke might just be showing us the story or telling us the story of the church, the story of the next man up. Like Paul, we have been called to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to Jews and Gentiles alike. And if we are obedient to that call, we will likely experience all sorts of storms and sufferings, and tragedies, and loss in life. But if we endure those storms like we are called to endure them, that's, 
That's God's call. Endure those storms out of love for the lost and out of obedience to God. Endure the storms that come your way. And so Luke is asking us, first of all, to be faithful to our calling. You and me, be faithful to your calling. And he's asking us, are you willing to brave the storms of life and stay on mission, stay on course? And I think in doing that, Paul or Luke is also showing us two other things, okay? Two things that we're going to talk about more in depth this morning. First of all, he's showing us the character that the storms of life can produce in us. The character that the storms of life can produce in us. And second, he's showing us how we can receive the storms of life without letting them sink us. Okay? So let's look at those two things. First, let's look at the character that the storms of life can produce in us. And in order to to understand this, let's go back in the story a bit and recount what's actually happening on Paul's journey here. And if you look back at verses 9 and 10, you see the situation is somewhat like this. The, the sailors, the ship has made it as far as the island of Crete. So we're on the southern tip of, of Greece, the southern island of, of Crete. And basically they have to make a decision if they're going to go any further, this, any further on this journey at this time of year. Okay? <coughs> Excuse me. So, they're trying to make that decision, and it helps to know what time of year it is. Luke tells us it's the time of year the fast is already over. And he's pointing us there to the Day of Atonement. And we know by the Day of Atonement, the dates of the Day of Atonement, we're talking about that time of year, September, October. Now, if you think back to Gordon Lightfoot, he talks about the the gales of November in his song, right? And what he's saying there is, you don't want to navigate the Great Lakes during the gales of November. That's a time of year, a season you don't want to be on the Great Lakes. This was a time and a season you did not want to be on the Mediterranean Sea either. There were hurricane-like winds that you often encountered at this time of year. And so what Paul does is he advises those who are leading this journey. He says, you know, I think we ought to just remain where we are. We should not go any further on this journey. And he says it this way. He says, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous. Okay? Then you look at verse 11. That's the advice he's given. And it says, the centurion, instead of listening to Paul, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Now, that's no real surprise to us, is it? At least it probably shouldn't be. If you're about to board an airplane and the weather doesn't look very good and you're looking around for some advice, you probably uh, might want to take the advice of the pilot, Jim Kostelik, over the advice of the passenger, Peter Verhulst, who doesn't have even very many frequent flyer miles, right? You're going to go with those who are the experts, Right? And so that's what the centurion does. He goes with what the ship captain says, the ship owner. But what happens? Who turns out to be right? It's Paul. Paul turns out to be right, and the ship runs into such a terrible storm that Luke writes in verse 20, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Okay? We gave up all hope of being saved. Now, how does Paul respond to that in verse 21? He says, I told you so. (laughs) 
We wouldn't expect that perhaps from Paul. I told you so, he says. But I don't think Paul is really being a wise guy here. Okay? He's not saying, look, I'm Paul, I'm a great apostle, you always ought to listen to what I say. Rather, when you read on, <clears throat> what he says is, um, you didn't listen to me before, but you should listen to me now. And why he wants them to listen to him now is because he wants to encourage them. And he says, look, God came to me last night in the form of an angel and he gave me a message and he said, we're all going to survive. We're all going to survive this, so, so take hope. And, and something happens after that, and that is that people begin to listen to Paul. In fact, we read next that the, the sailors intend to pull a fast one, and, and they're going to steal the lifeboat and basically leave everybody else on board ship, and they're going to make for land, leave everyone else to fend for themselves. And Paul goes to the centurion and the soldiers, and he says, you can't let this happen. We're not going to make it without the sailors. We're only going to survive if they're with us. And the centurion listens and cuts the lifeboat and sends it off afloat without the sailors in it. So the sailors are stuck on board the ship. They listen to Paul. And then we read that Paul tells them that they all need to eat something. They need to eat something to, to save their strength. And, and again, this seems crazy under the circumstances. I mean, what difference does it make to have a full stomach if you're going to have full lungs full of water in just a few moments? But again, they all listen to Paul's advice and they eat and they are encouraged. And what we begin to see is that Paul has somehow become the ipso facto leader, ipso facto leader of the group. Now, how do we account for that? And the answer, I think, is this, that, that Paul radiates a certain confidence. Paul is, is steady in the face of danger. Paul is a rock. And the people that he interacts with, they recognize that, and they're encouraged by that, and they find hope in that. And friends, <clears throat> it's hard to explain, because if this was the first time you were looking at, at the Bible or at the book of Acts, you would wonder, why would anyone take Paul's advice at a time like this? What does Paul know about sailing and all of that? But then if you begin to read the book of Acts and if you read Paul's letters, you begin to put the story together and you figure out that this is like Paul's somewhere in 10 to 12 sea voyages, sea journeys. He's been on, he's been on the seas a lot. And 2 Corinthians 11 even tells us that, that he was shipwrecked three times, at least three times. We don't know if, if this, uh, you know, the recording in Acts 27 is his fourth shipwreck or his third shipwreck. It depends on how you time Paul's letters. But he says, once I was even all night in the water, 24 hours treading water. So contrary to what you might think at first, Paul may actually have more experience on the seas than, than anyone else. Three shipwrecks. Can you imagine why he was a little antsy about you know, going off in September, October, that time of year. And yet, I'm not sure it's just Paul's experience on the seas that make him a person of such influence 
among his peers. In fact, I think it may have to do with the rest of what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. And that is that he's gone through all sorts of storms in his life. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. And he talks about his shipwrecks. He says, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my fellow Jews, from Gentiles, in danger in the city and in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and gone without food. I've been cold and naked. All of those storms Paul has gone through. Now listen to what he says about that. Again in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You see how how Paul refers to his sufferings? Light and momentary. Have you ever been treading water for 24 hours in the ocean? Light and momentary? I mean, compared to what, Paul? Compared to what? Compared to the eternal glory that these things are achieving in us. Do you know what glory is, friends? It it literally means weight. Weight. It means something that lasts, something substantial, something that can't be blown here and there by the wind. It's not not blown around by circumstances. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the sufferings that he has endured in life for Jesus Christ have made him a person of glory, a person of weight, a person of calm, on the inside, even though he looks beaten and battered on the outside. Even when the the storms are fierce and blowing, he's still got this calm on the inside. And that's what I think makes Paul the person to listen to in the midst of a storm. Paul has an anchor And people recognize that. Paul is stable. People are attracted to that. And Paul himself is so grounded, so to speak, that that he actually can think about other people in the midst of a storm and what they might need. Paul can show compassion to others in the force of hurricane winds. He can be an encourager He can be their harbor, even in a raging storm. Friends, that's the kind of person that suffering, especially suffering for Christ, can produce. Think about the people that you know for a moment. The people in your life. The people that you look to in times of trouble the people who, who can help stabilize you, the people who give you hope, the 
people who have some gravitas that you look at and you think, if they can make it, I can make it too. People who convince you that you're going to be all right. Think of those people. And now ask yourself, how many of them have gone through suffering in their life? How many have been made the way that they are through suffering? Or maybe to get at that another way, think of just the opposite. Think of people you know who perhaps they've been sheltered all their life or maybe just by luck, they really haven't gone through any storms in life. Life has just sort of been clear sailing for them. What are those people like? Oftentimes, I hate to say it, but oftentimes they're shallow. They're kind of flighty, constantly blown wherever the wind takes them. They're not very compassionate toward others. They're not very helpful. And even when they want to be, they don't seem to have the slightest idea of how. And storms just wreck them. When waves start to rise, they fall to pieces. You see, friends, where there is no suffering, there is no glory. Paul, Paul says it this way in Romans 5. He says, suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character and character hope. When we are not willing to receive the suffering, our character is depleted. There's no glory being developed, and we get blown around by the wind. We have no hope. You know, so often, friends, we come to that place in our lives where we face a decision. We feel the call of God upon us, and as we, as we weigh that call and as we weigh the decision that we need to make, sometimes we look at the loss that we might experience if we choose that call of God the loss or the pain or the suffering or the uncertainty and, and we go the other direction. And as a result, we never experience the weight that God wants to, wants to put on our bones. Tim Keller made a bold statement about suffering. He says, suffering, suffering can ruin your life. It can ruin your life. It has that potential. If we don't receive it rightly, okay, it can ruin your life. You can become bitter. You can become filled with self-pity. You can become less compassionate, less clear about who you are. Suffering can ruin your life, he says. But then he adds this, but no suffering will ruin your life. No suffering will ruin your life. The refusal to ever receive suffering, when, when at all costs you want to avoid suffering in your life, avoid that, that decision that's going to be hard, that might mean loss, that might mean trouble, you'll never become a person of substance. You'll never gain enough weight. You'll be spiritually anorexic, always dependent on fair weather. 
always dependent on fair weather. Your health is always going to be good. There's always going to be plenty of money. You're always going to have solid relationships. But if those things blow away, you'll be miserable. So the question then becomes, friends, how do we, how do we take on, how can we receive the storms of life in a way that actually adds weight to us, that adds substance to us, rather than having us being swept overboard? How do we receive suffering? And the answer I think that Paul gives us is we eat. Seems to make sense if you want to gain weight, but I'm not sure that's exactly what, what he means. Let me try and put it this way. You know, Jackie and I, we have a little uh, <clears throat> 16 and a half foot runabout boat. And uh, we keep it up in Door County. And so whenever we're up there, we're always looking at, you know, should we take the boat out on the lake or on the bay? It's never like a little, little pond. It's always the big lake that we want to go on. It's not November, but it is. Um, and every time we look at the water, it doesn't matter. There could be white caps out there, all of that. I've never heard Jackie say, I don't think it looks so good today. She's always like, I think it looks good. I think we should try it. And I'm the one who's thinking, are you crazy? In fact, I say it. <clears throat> I say, I'm not going out there. Not today. We need calmer waters. More than that, what I think we need, what I need, is more confidence in the boat. Okay? A 16-foot boat is not a great boat for the Great Lakes. You need confidence in, in the boat. And then I think back to the disciples being out on the Sea of Galilee with um, the storm raging around them and threatening to sink them. And it wasn't the storm um, that Jesus wanted to, them to focus on. It was something in the boat, right? And he said, I'm here. What are you worried about? Paul says, it's time to eat. In the midst of the storm, let's eat. Doesn't seem to make any sense. But then look at how he eats. Verse 35, before the ship is finally wrecked, Paul gathers everyone around him, and he takes bread and he gives thanks and he breaks it and he eats. Now this is Luke telling the story here. And if you look back at Luke's telling of the Last Supper, he uses those exact fourfold actions. Take, give thanks, break, and eat. Again, there's a metaphor here. And it's not like Paul was celebrating the Lord's Supper in the midst of that storm, but Theophilus's church, remember Theophilus? He's the one Luke is writing to. Theophilus's church would not have missed the point of Luke. That in the middle of the storms of life, the church celebrates the Lord's Supper. Why? Because at this table, we remember that we're not alone. 
that the living Jesus is with us. We're not alone. You know, um, Jackie and I have been doing some house cleaning. <clears throat> some people would call it death cleaning. Um, I'm not that morbid. Um, but we're trying to get things organized and sort of ready for the next stage of life. And so we're going through things like bookshelves and clearing out, you know, the books that we don't need. And one of the books we actually came across was, was a, an, a thank you album. It was kind of an album of memories from our first congregation. And when they sent this off to Brookfield to service here, they put this book together, kind of like we did for Paula, you know, pictures and memories and, and things like that. And I, I was actually looking at it again and, and reading through some of this stuff. And, um, you know, as a pastor, you've got sort of this idea of what your job is, right? Like I spend most of my time doing what? writing sermons and presenting sermons and proclaiming the word of God. And so you look at something like this and you're kind of thinking someone's going to say, you know, we really appreciated your preaching. <clears throat> um, we loved the, the sermon on Jacob. Or, or my heart was changed by that sermon on the prodigal son. None of that. None of that in the book at all. And so you're kind of deflated as a pastor. And then I began to look at it again. And it was funny the things that people remembered and wrote down. What they remembered are the times when we were um, doing dishes at the young people's um, pancake breakfast and kind of sweating over the dishes with everybody else. And, and they remembered... Um, the time that we took our life group to the Holland home. It's a big retirement home in Grand Rapids. And there in the courtyard, we hauled our charcoal grill and grilled brats for everybody that was in our church that was in the Holland home. We smoked out everybody in the Holland home as well. But that's what they remembered. And, and one person remembered the time that, that I was loading a moving van for... Um, for a single mom and we were kind of sweating next to each other and I was holding up the mattress and he was loading everything underneath. And I began to realize that they didn't remember words so much as just being present. Present with them as they were serving Christ. And I think that's what Paul is telling us. That as the church, when we are serving Christ and we're encountering all sorts of storms, what we don't need necessarily are words and reasons for why this happens and why bad things happen to good people and all of that. What we need is to remember that Jesus is right there with us. And not just Jesus, but the crucified Jesus who put all of his trust and all of his obedience in his Father and the resurrected Jesus 
None of it was in vain. Let's come to the table and let's eat. And you young people began a journey today. My advice is you want to eat at this table a lot and put on the weight of glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come to us now and remind us that we are not alone. Remind us that we don't take a step without you standing right next to us, encouraging us and reminding us that you've gone before us and that you were victorious, and we will be too. In Jesus' name, amen.